We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Dr. Otto Yang. He's the Associate Chief of the Infectious Disease here at UCLA in Los Angeles. Dr. Yang has a background in clinical infectious diseases, and his lab has been specializing in T-cell immunology in HIV. Now, that experience and background put Dr. Yang in a unique position in the beginning of the pandemic, and he managed to repurpose his lab to study COVID-19 and the way our immune system responds to it. We cover a lot of ground in today's episode. As usual, we talk about Dr. Yang's personal journey from growing up as a first-generation Taiwanese-American in Tennessee to Harvard and then to UCLA. And then we compare notes on dictatorships. Uh, I have to admit, we do spend quite some time there. I'm a big history and government buff, uh, if you didn't know that yet about me. And Dr. Yang shared uh, a great primer on the state of affairs in Taiwan, which, considering what has been happening in Hong Kong, we should all keep an eye on. We, of course, talk about Dr. Yang's research and why he describes himself as, and I quote, the toilet paper of medicine. Gwyneth Paltrow and Tom Hanks also make an appearance in this story, so a lot to unpack. Now, on Thursday, I will be posting part two of this conversation where we get into the nitty-gritty of how the virus spreads, how it works, the variants, the immune system responses, the vaccines all that good stuff, which we keep learning more and more every day. Like, for example, Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine got approved. Congratulations to all of us. What a good day for humanity. Well, and here is my conversation with Dr. Yang. First, I usually ask, when did your family come here and where did they come here from? Yeah, uh, my parents came from Taiwan and they arrived in the U.S. in 1963. And so what brought them here? They came for education. So my, my father graduated from uh, medical school, the top medical school in Taiwan, actually. And at that time, that was a guaranteed ticket to huge financial success. That was an era when doctors were revered and income was was very, very high. Um, and he, for whatever reason, decided that he preferred science. So he came to the US uh, to get a PhD. And he applied to numerous graduate schools, got into all of them, and chose the one with the highest stipend, which was Tulane University. That's a, that's a good choice for a family man. <laughs> you were born a few years later, right? My mom came and she also studied at Tulane, studied mathematics, and then they got married here. And I think that had something to do with the immigration issues. That, so that makes sense. And then I came in January of 65, uh, an accident. The happy one. <laughs> <laughs> and so was their plan to go back? No, I think they always intended to stay. So my father wanted to pursue science and 
the USA at that time was by far the best place, probably still is. What did he study? So he studied biochemistry. At that time, things like molecular biology you know, didn't exist yet, but essentially he was a molecular biologist. He did a lot of early work in the 60s when people were just first discovering things like transfer RNAs and, and uh, DNA replication. And, and Sounds like his, some of his work may have had an impact on what, what we're dealing with right now. It did. It did. So. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so cool. Yeah. And so, what was the relationship then with Taiwan as a, in Taiwanese culture for you growing up? Uh, did you speak Taiwanese at home, or what was it like? Yes, I grew up speaking Taiwanese at home, and the the first day of nursery school, I remember not being able to communicate with anybody because um, I spoke only Taiwanese at that point. How did you navigate that barrier growing up? Uh, well, the first day of nursery school, I mostly just cried all day. <laughs> well, that's understandable. <laughs> yes, it, it was It was definitely quite a journey. Um, so after my father graduated from high school in Tulane, he moved to Tennessee because he got a postdoctoral position at uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory. So I grew up in eastern Tennessee in a small town, a bit of an oasis. So Tennessee, as, as you know, is a southern state and uh, very different than, than the rest of the country, than the northern states or the western states. Um, it had a reputation for, for uh, racism and prejudice. That was less of an issue because my town was full of scientists from all over the country, all over the world. Actually, as I grew up and eventually moved, went to the Northeast for my education, in fact, you know, I think that reputation is, is not entirely deserved, or it's deserved, but the better reputation of other parts of the country is less deserved because it's overstated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because the there was racism in in Tennessee, uh, but the nice thing was that it was out in the open, um, and you know you you saw it directly, and it was often possible to deal with it because people the racism was more due to to lack of understanding or lack lack of exposure, whereas racism in the northeast of the country was much more insidious, uh, hidden beneath the surface and not necessarily all due to, to lack of exposure or ignorance. Um, so it was a very different type of racism uh, in other parts of the country. So people always ask me if I, if it was terrible growing up in Tennessee in a racist part of the country. And, and I, I would say, no, actually it wasn't. Um, and, and, you know, I had lots of friends of all different races and it was not a, not an issue. But then when you came to Northeast expecting this uh, more accepting society, what were the things that you came to face? And I did residency training in New York City. And there at that time, um, I would frequently go to Chinatown to eat or get groceries. And, and there was a lot of tension between the, the Italians in Little Italy uh, and Chinatown because Chinatown was growing and the Italian section was shrinking. So there... Lots of blatant, angry racism there. Um, and then I went to Boston to, to do my infectious disease training. And there it was it, it was more, not so much racism necessarily as more elitism. So Harvard was, I, it's changed somewhat since then because that was the, the mid-90s. But it, it was definitely very, very Anglo-centric and very blue blood centric. You know, walking around Massachusetts General Hospital, it was all extremely tall white males. Um, and I, I suspect that uh, part of my getting into that program was also that I was tall, although not white. Um, so, I mean, just <laughs> statistically speaking, so in my, my year of the infectious disease trainees, there were uh, four males. The other three were white 
and I was a distant third in height at six feet. And then the, the, the shortest was 5'11". Uh, it was just a little creepy. It was odd. And all the Asians that were there were all very tall. <laughs> so, that I don't think was a... I don't think it's coincidence, right? It's statistically not possible that happened randomly. That is such an odd thing to mm-hmm. encounter. Yes, it, it was weird. And so then, well, knowing how hospitals and how medical field is in the states, my thought was, oh, it's a very diverse field. People, there's a lot of Asians. There's a lot of Latinos in the field. There should be uh, less racism on one hand. On the other hand, maybe there is even more because of the clashing of all those different groups facing each other. So what is your sense of that? I think that that a lot of that has reversed in the last decade or so. And in fact, now it is much, much better. Um, For example, in internal medicine or in medical school, uh, women equal or even exceed men. Uh, and But at, back then when I was in training, which is in the you know, early 90s, late 80s for medical school and then early 90s for my training, uh, things were different. And it, it was much less equitable at that point. And actually, when I was in medical school, the Asian Students Association sued uh, because they, they compiled statistics and they showed that uh, Asian Asian American applicants to medical school had a that were equal to to the Caucasians had a one quarter chance with the same record of, of being admitted and the the school actually pled no contest so it wasn't wasn't even disputed um, and so my class of about 50, 50 medical students uh, I believe there were three or four of us that were Asian uh, and that's that's changed a lot now um, so it's mm-hmm. much more um, much more diverse now than it was back then. It's such an odd uh, subject to even bring up uh, because for me personally, coming from Russia, that is diverse, but somehow it never, maybe it still awaits its moment when it faces its own racism. Maybe it is because it's just so behind socially. But for me coming to States uh, as an adult, just realizing that race is this one one of the biggest issues um, was just um, disorient, disorienting in a way, how much impact it has. Yeah, I would say that uh, my family, my parents were remarkably colorblind uh, in that when I was growing up. They really, they had friends of all races and it did not seem to matter. So it actually wasn't an issue that we discussed mm-hmm. very much. And in some ways, that was I think that was better because it did not instill a sense of, of, of awareness of race, but kind of it's more just emphasized that it didn't matter. It's a weird issue in our society now. It's such a double-edged sword to talk about race, right? Because on the one hand, you're trying to address inequities, but on the other hand, you're, you're also at the same time further dividing and further yeah. classifying. And, and so it's a weird, weird thing where you know, we're, we're saying that we need to be colorblind, but then we're putting a huge amount of emphasis on race. Uh, so I'm not sure what the answer is, but yeah, that's not the way I was raised. Right. And so with other things, like just culturally, uh, would you say that you grew up very Taiwanese or more American? I would say I grew up more Taiwanese, which uh, in that era was a little unusual, uh, I think. And I'm not sure what my parents did to, to, to um, foster that because in that time, 
um, many Asian American kids uh, wanted to fit in and in fact would reject their background as much as possible uh, and would end up not, in fact, not speaking their, their parents' language and trying to, to act as, as Caucasian as, as possible. So, you know, a term, a, the term some people use is uh, banana, uh, you know, yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. So, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, but somehow my parents, you know, maintained the, the culture and we spoke the language at home and I didn't reject it and uh, very glad that I didn't. Um, there were families around where it was kind of the, the opposite. In fact, sometimes even the parents encouraged it. So it, it was yeah. very amusing that growing up, I knew there was a Korean kid who whose parents felt that they wanted their son to 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 blend in as well as possible. And so they spoke only English at home. And in fact, he developed a thick Korean accent, uh, even though oh he my spoke, God. spoke not a word of Korean, <laughs> which is the worst of both, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it, it is, uh, I think it happens in all commun immigrant communities. There are, I've heard that same story of people uh, rejecting their old, their home culture. I know it exists among Russians for sure. I've heard that about Latinos here, even in California, where kids don't want to speak Spanish. Yeah. Um, and I think it has to do with this choice that the person makes and the desire to blend in and feeling like there's no other way to belong unless you give up your other identity, not realizing that you cannot give that up. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting also that, that, um, that was also the stance of, of the school. So in elementary school, I, I was lazy and did very poorly. And the, the teachers, the principal of the school told my parents that I had a learning disability and that the learning disability was a result of the fact that we did not speak English at home and that my language skills would never catch up, which- <laughs> At elementary school? At what, age six? Uh, age 10, 10, 11, yeah. Mm. yeah. And but was it, was language an issue? No, my parents <laughs> said he's just lazy. So, so the teacher completely misdiagnosed the, the problem. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, my parents said, yeah, he's just lazy and he's just bored. <laughs> uh, and indeed, I, you know, it was, you know, I think in that era, they did not recognize that smart kids needed to, to have more stimulation and, and um, yeah. be able to advance at their own pace. And so that was part of it as well. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, considering how how you've done <laughs> since, <laughs> I don't think uh, language skills were the, the challenge. Indeed. Um, you said that you grew up more Taiwanese. And so besides the language, what was it? Certainly things like food, keeping in touch with family. So we made frequent trips to Taiwan. So I, I knew my grandparents quite well uh, and was able to converse with them in, in their native language. And then, of course, later on, uh, that involved learning about Taiwanese politics. And mm -hmm. so, you know, some of these issues that we're talking about in terms of things like preserving the language, they, they actually go back a generation to, to the history of Taiwan, where the, the nationalists tried to stamp out the Taiwanese language. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, it became uncool or unpopular to speak the Taiwanese dialect because the, the government there tried so hard to stamp it out. And, and I, I speak better Taiwanese, in fact, than, than me and my cousins who grew up in Taiwan. Wow. Just, yeah, interesting. And is Taiwanese still uh, the main language in Taiwan or is it being pushed out still? Yeah, it's it almost got pushed out. So I don't want to get into a long, you know, boring lecture. Well, it is fascinating. Maybe we can take a quick step back because sure. I don't think people understand 
really what Taiwan is. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I mean, people make fun of Americans for not knowing geography overall, but I think Taiwan has a special place in the confusion because of its history. Mm -hmm. um, so can you set it up? Sure. The history of Taiwan is interesting. So it, it was originally, so Taiwan is a, is a large volcanic subtropical island off the southeast coast of China. It was originally home to native islander people um, who eventually got displaced very much like American Indians in the United States. In the Ming Dynasty, the, which is in the 1600s, the, the Chinese settled Taiwan uh, and it became almost like a, a province, another part of China. And then in the Sino-Chinese War in the late 1800s, uh, China lost to Japan, and part of that was uh, handing over Taiwan to Japan. Japan built a lot of the infrastructure there. They built roads. So Taiwan has a little bit of a different relationship to Japan than other Asian countries, most of whom feel a great deal of resentment because of the imperialism of Japanese um, in the 1900s. And so... So uh, Taiwan kind of actually got something out of being a, lot, a colony. A lot, yeah. Um, and they, they were treated relatively well because it was considered their own territory. Um, so a lot of there's a lot of Japanese influence in, in Taiwan in terms of things like architecture, food. Um, and then uh, with the Second World War, the nationalists in mainland China fought with the communists. Uh, and of course, the communists eventually won. And the nationalists were pushed further and further to the southeast uh, as they were losing. And eventually they retreated across the strait and they took Taiwan as, as their stronghold. Uh, wow. So it's a rebel rebel island. Uh, depends on whether you consider the, the, the nationalists or the, the communists the rebels. But yeah, they were the losing side. Um, and so... Well, I guess it switched over time. Yeah, switched over. First the communists were the rebels and then the nationalists became the rebels and, yeah. in opposition. And so, in fact, the, the nationalists that went to Taiwan were brutal dictators. Um, they, they actually imposed martial law. They confiscated all the property from the Taiwanese. Um, there was a massacre called 228, uh, where they killed a lot of Taiwanese intellectuals uh, and political opposition. They had a very strong secret police, um, which I guess is probably you know something about in, from your culture. Yeah, well. very familiar. So, very, a lot of things very familiar. <laughs> Revolutions yeah. and secret police and dictators. So people be, yeah, people would be disappeared or, or otherwise imprisoned, silenced. Um, martial law was not lifted until 1987, which most people don't realize. So so that what it was like 50 years of martial 49 law? To, 49 to 87. Um, Whoa. Yeah, so it was hardly the free. And what, that, what did that mean? What did that mean for people like martial law as a leadership? In so the Chiang Kai-shek, the leader basically declared whatever he wanted. So there were there were no elections. There was no democracy. Um, so they, they they imposed Mandarin as the national language. Uh, in my parents' era, if you spoke Taiwanese in school, you could be fine. Wow. Broadcast, all media was only in Mandarin. Um, they really tried to, to stamp it out. Um, so in, in many ways, they were actually worse than the Japanese. Um, so, Sounds like it. Yeah. And then and so the first free and fair elections were not until the 1990s. Um, so it is now. So it is very similar to kind of in, in that sense to Russian history. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of parallels. Yeah. Wow. I did not realize that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> and so do you think that this uh, oppression had to do with your family's desire to leave? No, not so much, um, because 
you know, and my my dad had a basically having graduated from that medical school had a guarantee of an extremely comfortable life, um, and so all his classmates were extremely wealthy. Uh, so no, he he would have been fine, and he wasn't particularly a political person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think both of my parents felt very culturally focused, though, and that's why we spoke Taiwanese and not Mandarin because they both speak fluent Mandarin because of uh, their education. Right, you you kind of had to, from what I understand. There's no other option really. Um, it's fascinating. I, I love it. And it's one of the reasons why I love having guests from all over the world, because we get to share history and kind of compare the notes of how things evolved. And because it really, it does bring us to today and it helps us get a little more context on what's happening. And so since the 90s, what, what happened there in the late 80s that changed everything? I think just modernization and the so for for decades the the government there considered themselves to be china and mainland china to be held by rebels and they still held the hope of taking taking it back for a long time wow and i think eventually the realization came that that wasn't going to happen um and so then it became important to to maintain power it became important to to basically convert uh over to to a democracy um and so the the late 80s you know Early '90s, lots of things changed. Because, uh, for example, the the infrastructure in Taiwan was was quite poor, and the living standard wasn't great. Because like, they always considered it to be kind of a, a temporary holding, mm. a temporary place to stay until they took power. Back, right? so <laughs> but as they, we know, there's nothing more permanent than temporary. Yeah. So they so they didn't really upgrade the the rail lines, for example. They didn't you know, they didn't do a lot to improve the roads to build uh, to build freeways, they didn't do any of that really until, and then, and then in the 90s, there was a huge, uh, huge investment in doing these things. So now there's a high, high speed rail, uh, the uh, bullet train, there, there are great rail systems. The standard of living is just really nice there. Wow. And so what is the relationship with China now? It is a combative one. Um, so China considers Taiwan to be, to be um, of course, the, the rebel state that needs to be taken back. Mm-hmm. Um, and Taiwan, the, the politics have been really interesting. And so the, the Nationalist Party, which were the original occupiers that came in, they've actually flipped their stance from being completely anti-China. They're the enemy and we need to take them, take, take them over. Now, I think in their desperation to maintain power, now they are the, the party of unifying with China. And, oh, wow. <laughs> That, that they need to peacefully that we need to peacefully reunify Taiwan with China and so that um, so that we can return back to the to where we belong and so they're extremely pro-China extremely pro-Chinese policies. Are they the ruling party right now? Well, so now it's a democracy and and we have they well I shouldn't say we because I'm an American but they they have elections their parties. The blue party, and then there's a, the green party, which is currently in power. And mm. the green party um, is pro-Taiwanese independence. They don't want to be under the rule of of, of uh, China. Uh, they, they've mm-hmm. seen what happened in Hong Kong. They've seen what happened in Macau. They, they don't want. Yeah. Um, and that these two are are really in conflict, and China is watching very angrily. They, they you know, every time the green party makes advances in, in its influence. China gets more and more angry and does more and more saber rattling and, and with threats to, to take Taiwan by force. So it's it's a volatile situation. So they do still threaten actual military force. Absolutely. Because my my guess was like 
Are there any economic sanctions? Are they against communication? Can you travel between? You actually China? can. Um, so the economic ties between Taiwan and, and China are are already very close, and mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of trade between the two. And lots of companies have have uh, operate in both countries. So the, you know, they econ economically they're they're already very well integrated in many ways. It's the politics. That are separate. And I can understand why Taiwan would want to maintain its independence, mm -hmm. uh, seeing seeing uh, the stress that has been imposed on on Hong Kong. Wow. Well, but it's but then there are all these you know it, it's again it's it's crazy conspiracy theory stuff like there there the 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 blue party says that in fact uh, China is a great benevolent ruler and that the stuff in Hong Kong is 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 orchestrated. Um, by propaganda who? by the by the British and, and the Americans. Oh, it's my favorite, my favorite stuff. Always the British and the American. Yes, yeah. That it's the CIA and MI6 that are organizing those protests, and they're not real. They don't. It's crazy. It's all. Oh my God! They say exactly the same stuff in Russia, <laughs> like word for word. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yes. Well, I do want to uh, transition to COVID stuff. <laughs> sure. Will life ever go back to normal? I hope so. And I, I think it will, although we may have to just accept a certain level of, of um, death and destruction as part of our everyday life, right? So, you know, uh, hopefully we can get it down to the level where the harm done to society is similar to flu, mm -hmm. um, right? And it's a little dangerous to say that because the conspiracy theorists have been saying all along that this is just like the flu. It's, it's not just like the flu, but I would hope that with vaccination and public awareness, public policies, that we can control it enough that, that the toll on society is reaches a level that's acceptable. Right. So flu itself yeah. is not benign at all. The, in an average year, 30 to 40,000 people in the U.S. die of flu. Yeah. But that seems to be acceptable to our society. Uh, yes. Maybe it shouldn't be, uh, but that's what we accept. And so maybe it, Maybe if we get this disease down to that, um, then life can return to normal. An interesting side note is that this flu season, because of the precautions being taken for COVID, has been remarkable. I think there have been less than 500 deaths uh, this year from flu. Wow. So this shows that if, if, that these public policies, in fact, do work. Uh, and it also highlights how much more contagious and dangerous COVID is compared to flu, right? Because right. The policies we've implemented have almost shut down flu and only dented COVID. Only dented is right. No. <laughs> Can you please tell me about your work with COVID? When did you start your research? We started uh, immediately back in March. Um, at that time, the university was asked to shut down all the labs, uh, except for essential workers doing work related to COVID. So both because of that and both because of our interests, we, we switched to doing COVID work. We have studied immune responses against HIV in detail for many years, so we had all the tools to immediately apply to this new virus. Um, so the two areas we've been looking at are antibody responses, which are much easier to study, and T-cell responses. So we have looked at antibody responses and done um, examinations of what happens to antibodies after somebody is infected. And more recently, we're doing examinations of what antibody responses look like after somebody receives vaccination, either someone who's never had COVID or in comparison to these people that I've been following for many months, what happens if they get the vaccine if they had COVID before. Uh, we were among the very first to show that antibody levels in after COVID-19 uh, seem to decline very quickly mm -hmm. after somebody is infected, which is was actually bad news. 
Bad news, that, yeah. That immunity might not last very long. Um, and we published that in a fairly high profile publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. It caused a bit of a stir and some backlash. A lot of people, even scientists, uh, there are a lot of politics and there are some scientists that really did not like that news and um, published rebuttals. So they, they published different data showing that antibody responses don't change. Uh, and there was actually, interestingly, a New York Times op-ed that was to some large extent targeted directly at us, which was titled something like, uh, you know, don't worry about dropping antibody levels. Um, and but, so could one say that some of that could have to do with the fear of the concept of letting the disease wash over the country uh, uh, being non-sustainable? Non uh, a lot of it had to do with the hope that if if immunity lasts, then we could we could eventually achieve herd immunity without uh, anything really, without, without anything. having to do anything. Right. So the, the Swedish theory. Right. Um, and in the end, um, we were pretty much proven right. There are more and more cases now of, of reinfections. Um, it's there are not a lot of documented cases, but documentation is very difficult. You have to you have to sequence someone twice and show that the virus is not the same virus. So when a large proportion of people don't have any symptoms the first time, and a large proportion of people, maybe even a larger proportion, don't have symptoms the second time, and most labs aren't saving samples to do sequencing, um, it's a very rare situation where you have all the pieces in place to, to sequence somebody twice and document they they got reinfected. But um, even so, there are already tens of thousands of suspected cases of reinfection and. and dozens of, of confirmed reinfections. So, and, and I guess I don't want to sound arrogant, but it, it wasn't it wasn't at all surprising that this is the case because there are already coronaviruses that cause the common cold that have been circulating in humans for decades. And it is very well documented for those viruses that antibodies do not last more than a few months. Mm -hmm. And when the antibodies go away, people can get infected again. So to think that this virus would be different or to be surprised that this virus would be different, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and even even to this day, there, there are a lot of scientists now that are still arguing that that, that uh, reinfections aren't going to happen very much, and that the antibodies dropping don't don't really matter. Hmm. Uh, but okay, well, that's their opinion, right? And well, I guess that's uh, one of the beauties of the scientific. Uh, community and scientific method that all opinions get to be voiced and then some of them get proven right and some of them get proven wrong and there's hopefully less politics in it. <laughs> there's plenty of politics. You know, science has never been under as much scrutiny in the past as as now, I think. And and I think that the perception of, of scientists, the general incorrect perception, uh, sometimes posed by, kind of propagated by scientists themselves, is the scientists uh, are always uh, infallible fallible and always um, in agreement and that we come up with the truth. And what the public doesn't understand that is science is a messy process. And, and it's pretty similar to probably to, to law in that when, you, when there's a theory or a concept, it's tried uh, by mul on multiple sides by people arguing both cases that is correct or incorrect. And, and it's only through a drawn out process when all the evidence is looked at and a lot of people have have argued that eventually there's some consensus reached. And so it's, it's like when you watch a movie or a TV show, you, you hear the first argument and it sounds, oh, that, you know, it's quite clear that that's the case. And then you hear the rebuttal and you're like, whoa, but, uh, in fact, it's not that straightforward. Um, and it's the same in science. And so I think the public doesn't, they hear that and they hear dissenting scientists and they come up with the conclusion that scientists don't know what they're talking about. And, yeah. Um, and it's, that's just not the case. It's, and it's, it's the confusion about the method. 
And yeah. I like what you said in, in uh, one of the earlier interviews, I think the one in March that you gave, uh, uh, where you said, don't trust anybody, don't even trust me. Yeah, um, one opinion, and my opinion may be wrong. Um, and I, I love that there's clarity of that in the scientific community. And I think, and it kind of is confusing. And I think that's where people have a hard time dealing with it is you can't, people have a hard time keeping both thoughts in their mind, the, the kind of uh, contradictory, we need to trust science. And then at the same time, we need to trust that science will change over time. And that seems to be difficult to, to keep up with for people. To me, science is not a body of knowledge. It's, it's a process, right? So it's a tool. So scientists are constantly attacking each other and chipping away until we get to the right answer. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about that how vaccines are not uh, the silver bullet and that it has to be a number and a complex uh, uh, number of measures. So what what is it that will need to be happening from where we stand right now? What do you see? I think we need to combine public health policies with uh, and have a comprehensive plan that vaccines are part of. So you know, I, I think we need to figure out how to reduce risk in public places. So places potentially where people have to be crowded, like public transportation, schools, and have careful plans that mitigate the risk in those areas. Um, we, we need to uh, figure out the best use of biologics to prevent infections, uh, including vaccines, but monoclonal antibodies potentially um, might have a role. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think we need to do aggressive contract tracing at the point that it starts to potentially work when, when the fire is under enough control that, that we can be putting out small uh, small bla blazes here and there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, all of those things. And we need to figure out how, how to operate businesses more safely so that essential workers aren't, aren't um, all getting infected. Right. And then there's the development of the treatments, of course. You participated in the study that explored rem remdesivir, remdesivir, the controversial treatment. It's not controversial to experts. Okay. Uh, well, to most experts. So, <laughs> science. Back to science. Back to science. Yes. Uh, it's yeah. It, the the best, most carefully done studies showed a clear benefit. Remdesivir. It's it's a treatment that that helps but doesn't cure. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a setting where where the illness is not being treated, supported well enough, then the benefit of remdesivir is just not going to be there. Um, mm. So it's not a silver bullet. Not a silver bullet at all. Um, it's definitely but a bullet. Helpful. It's def definitely helpful and it's definitely important to use, especially in treating people with early disease. But yeah, uh, so yeah, regarding the clinical trials, um, clinical trial research is an entirely, it's, it's, a, it's a specialty area of research that most people spend an entire career doing. And so this, this is not the type of research that I do. I'm a laboratory scientist. Um, and so I don't know, somehow I got repurposed to running clinical trials. So I've run several large clinical trials at UCLA related to COVID-19 treatment. Um, mm -hmm. I think the reason was how what is the, what is the difference for for those of us who are not in the field? I, I, yeah. For me, it's like a trial. They're, they're testing yeah. the thing, and yeah. apparently so there's my, my usual research. My usual research is running a lab, so it's a lab where we deal with molecules and cells um, and manipulate things in the test tube. Uh, clinical trials research is organizing groups of patients and. Uh, trying different treatments in those patients. Uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of the next step in the process. Yeah, it's it's the next step along along moving something in, into clinical usage. Um, and so it's a very specialized area. It, it deals with uh, regulations, how you how you deal with uh, patients, getting all the regulatory pieces in place, the ethics approvals, 
the FDA contacts, uh, this and that and the other, how, how data is recorded and collected. Uh, so it's a very specialized type of research. So I kind of learned on the fly. So you were in the right place in the right time. Yeah, I, I like to refer to myself as the, the toilet paper of medicine because <laughs> toilet paper before the pandemic was completely unappreciated, taken for granted. And then during the pandemic became highly, highly overvalued over, you know, uh, and, and uh, overappreciated. So, uh, so that, I feel that that's what's happened to me. Um, it's a good analogy. <laughs> it works. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I think it's, it's raised a lot of public awareness for how important infectious disease practitioners are. Because in general, Infectious diseases has been kind of neglected or underappreciated as a specialty. Um, and a really good example of that is, is that uh, I attend our medicine, Department of Medicine Leadership uh, meetings monthly. And, and one of the things that's reviewed there is charitable do donations to physicians mm -hmm. uh, and departments. And it's always the, the oncologists and the, um, and like the transplant physicians also get lots and lots of donations and appreciate, you know, reflecting appreciation from grateful patients. Infectious disease, we almost never get anything. Another thing that I do have to ask you about, I know that Gwyneth Paltrow is participating in one of your studies. Uh, how did that happen? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's okay to talk about that because she revealed it herself. Uh, so yeah, it's on uh, on her website. That's her how I found out. <laughs> yeah, her Google podcast. Um, she contacted UCLA and said that she had COVID and was interested in any way that she could help and ask if there were any research going on that, that um, she could participate in. And so she got referred to me, basically. Mm. So yeah, uh, same thing happened with Tom Hanks. Uh, oh, so, really? Yeah, so Tom Hanks also is, is uh, part of your study. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Well, it's nice to know that some people care to, to contribute in the way that they can. Yes. And what exactly? I mean, if it is possible, I don't know if it is confidential to reveal. Are they participating in the? What kind of study are yeah, you exploring? Immune responses. So they they've been mm -hmm. helping helping give samples for me to look at immune responses against COVID. Right. So they they both were infected uh, many months ago. So that's part of my study to look at how long immune responses last and and. Um, if oh, so that pain. that very controversial matter yeah. of the antibodies going down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were both involved in that. Wow. Well, and, that's and Tom Hanks also um, his also his other big motivation was being a plasma donor. So so he wanted me also to test and, and let the blood bank know if he had antibodies that he could be a plasma donor, which he ended up doing. That's so cool. And that brings me to the last question is what can people do to help um, the situation overall? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, the best thing they can do is to follow public health policies and try to try to stop the spread of the virus and themselves not get infected even if they themselves are low risk. Uh, because again, we're a society and the, the there are many vulnerable people in our society that that, um, that will suffer severe consequences if they get sick. So the best thing they can do is to try to do sensible things like masking and distancing uh, and following precautions and getting vaccinated uh, if it's offered to them. I mean, that that's- That's number one. And then number. what else What else can we do? Uh, you can, try to help uh, research. So if you, if you, if there are research studies going on and, and you're inclined to participate, you can be a participant in, in research as, as Ms. Paltrow and Mr. Hanks have done. The UCLA Health website has a list of all research studies going on. So they can go there and, the, and they can see if there are any studies that they would qualify for. And then the third thing is uh, providing financial aid for, for research. So I can provide you a website for my own research program. If that's uh, Yes, absolutely. I'll put a link in the show notes and I'll uh, send it out everywhere. Yeah.
So I don't know if people understand how research works in, a, in an academic institution, but biomedical research generally is not paid for by the school. So, you know, people that I talk to will say, oh, you're, you're a professor at UCLA. That's great. You, 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 uh, all you have to do is, your tenure is all you have to do is uh, do your work. And, and that's great. And, and actually, that's not how it works. They, the school does not provide support for the research. The funds I have to get myself. So wow. funds for everybody that works for me, for my salary, for their salaries, for all the supplies we use, for most of the equipment we use, all has to be uh, through funds that I raise. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's for my lab, which is a middling sized lab. It's uh, close to a million dollars a year. Wow. And that uh, comes through competitive grants. And most of us get our grants through the government, through the National Institutes of Health, mm-hmm. which was not a big deal prior to 2008. About a quarter of all grant applications got funded. Now, that number has dropped to less than a tenth. Wow. Um, because funding really has stayed flat or over the years, that kind of causes a vicious cycle because then I have to spend more and more of my time of my time putting together grant applications and less of my, less of my time doing science. Wow! Um, so uh, it's it's driven a lot of people out. Uh, people are retiring early. Physician scientists, in particular, are a dying breed because if you have an MD, you have a, a means to make a good living. And For sure. To enter this this pathway, where first of all, most don't make it. So most people don't get a faculty position who want one. Um, and even if you do, you, you're constantly struggling to get funding. So some of us, including me, are, are trying are turning to looking for other sources of funding. Um, and philanthropy is a big one. Uh, so if you're extremely wealthy, let me know. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe not even extremely. I mean, anybody yeah, yeah. can make a donation. And Every little bit helps. And UCLA is actually a nonprofit, so it's it's tax deductible uh, if, if you're looking for a tax deduction. Yeah, that's that's great to know. And I'm glad that I asked. And it, it's so uh, it is very concerning, that tendency that you have described. And d- does it have yeah. to do with the reduction of uh, budget uh, assignment or what, what is it? Yeah, yeah. So, so research government research budgets have generally, I mean, they, they've increased, but they haven't kept up with inflation. Hmm. Um, and on top of that, the funding of research has become much more political. So that you know, there's a certain pot of money that people can apply for, but more and more of that money is being earmarked for certain types of research. So the the amount of money that you can apply for for your own project for your own idea that that has shrunken a lot. So they'll tell you what to work on and you can apply to work on what they tell you. Uh, mm. But those And what money. is the issue with that? Do they not know where priorities are or? Well, they want to set the priorities. They don't want us to set the priorities, uh, right? And part of that is because- And who are they in this? Uh... The, the, the government, the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and is that a problem? Is it? Uh, and I'm just asking yeah, yeah. naively, like, aren't yeah. the scientists in there too? There, there are. Um, there are pluses and minuses to it. So. I, and people argue about it. So the plus is that the plus is that the research is organized in certain directions, uh, and and that so for example during World War II when when um, the United States government wanted to build the atomic bomb in a rush, they organized all the scientists to work on different parts of the problem, and they right. got it very quickly, right? So but if you have a problem like an HIV vaccine where we don't know what the path is, we don't know what needs to be done. That to me, that's the wrong approach. There, you need diversity of ideas. You need people going off in different directions, trying out different leads, different high risk things. Um, and that's what's kind of suffering now is, is uh, with money being shorter, the, the government is less likely to, to want to take any risks. They don't want to fund things for high risk, uh, things that, that are that may not have a clear metric for success within the next five or 10 years. Well, and that should be exactly the kind of thing that government is funding because a business will not fund that kind of a thing because it's not 
a, a guaranteed return, but it is a hope for a public good. Exactly. That's exactly it. Hmm. Well, I'm so glad that that came up, and uh, I hope that participation, even though I, we don't, I don't know about those the, if there were any contributions from uh, Mr. Hanks and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, but the fact that they're even participating as uh, volunteers in the research maybe will bring attention to your work, and maybe will help you uh, spend less time running around searching for money and actually focus on your work. Yes. Yes, and, and also supporting the new generation of trainees. That's the other thing that is really important is, is sheltering, protecting people to develop their careers, um, right? But so the, the main, the major grant that most scientists, biomedical scientists use is called the R01 grant. Um, that's kind of the stable grant for supporting research. The average age that a biomedical scientist gets their first R01 grant has increased over the last couple of decades to 45. Which is kind of just maybe and correct me if i'm wrong but obviously science takes time and it takes time to accumulate certain uh, amount of knowledge and experience but young scientists achieve a lot yes yeah right so most scientists i know that in math for example like that's a specific thing like there is a cutoff age after which mind just doesn't work as fast or whatever it is but like most discoveries and most achievements are made by younger scientists Yes, absolutely. And some and most scientists complete their training in their early 30s. Right? So they have to survive to, to long enough to, to, to get established and start getting those large grants. And so yeah, it's tough. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, sure. I love a, an insight into that world. I'm always fascinated with the world of science. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was informative. Let us know what you think. Shoot us a message on social media, via email, or leave us a message on our Google Voice. All the links are in the show notes or on our website. You can also find a link to Dr. Ying's lab to donate. Please donate if you can. And tune in on Thursday for the in-depth conversation about COVID-19, the current state of understanding of the virus, the vaccines, the variants, the studies, all that good stuff. And don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who wants to keep up with COVID-19 information. Do you know anyone like that? Or maybe someone who's in medical school and thinking about a career in science. Or someone who's like me, slightly obsessed with dictatorships. Just click share and text them a link. Let them know you're thinking about them and help us grow the show. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace. My country, my country, you can keep the rest.